Lemons and all kinds of fruit and say we've got an old fashioned. You know, that song is hard to dislike, and we're playing it because uh, one of the little side quotes in that wonderful book by Mr. O'Grant uh, referred to Irving Fisher, the Yale economist who had remained Prohibition's leading intellectual defender. Well, there's a couple quotes from him in the book worthy of note. One is his famous stock prices have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. Said exactly nine days before Black Friday in 1929. And though he did make numerous pronouncements uh, about prohibition that turned out to be somewhat dubious, the line I liked was his response to the question a man put to him, because he was a bit of a linguist, as if it was grammatically correct to say, yes, we have no bananas. Fisher responded that yes, it was, if the question you were asked was, have you no bananas? We have no bananas today. And you know, we just can't get enough of that kind of stuff on this program. But when it comes to the English language, one thing that I think we find it very easy to get enough of are palindromes. According to an article by Gregory Cornblow in The Believer, as repeated in The Week magazine, a man named Barry Duncan is locked in an epic struggle with the alphabet. Apparently, ever since he picked up a book on wordplay in 1981, Duncan, age 53, has been obsessed with writing palindromes. Words or sentences that read the same forward and backward. Now, I confess, I have exactly one of these that I like. Which is, a man, a plan, a canal. Panama. Which certainly evokes Teddy Roosevelt. But Duncan, described as a recently unemployed bookstore clerk, said, I write hundreds a day, and apparently his complex compositions often run up to 1,000 characters long and tackle big issues like climate change. Said Duncan, and I quote, You shouldn't confuse me with any of those garden-variety Madam I'm Adam hacks. To which we say, Good God! Reportedly, his proudest achievement is a 406-word creation that he wrote on commission from an eco-friendly boutique in Cambridge. One of the piece's lines, Go Ecotopia, is reversed to read in part, an IPO to CEO. And to those of you who find such things amusing, I say, seek professional help. Because notes the article, despite such playfulness, the life of a master palindromist, if that's how you pronounce it, is it palindromist or palindromist? Oh, I don't know. But it's apparently a lonely life. None of his friends share his passion, and apparently several have stopped talking to him after he sent them his first book of reversible prose. Says Duncan. People think it's freakish. Palindrome writing is not the way to win friends and influence people. To which I would hasten to add, we have nothing to add. Oh, and by the way, we want to wish the UC Davis Arboretum a happy 75th birthday. It all started back in 1936 with some science students. Started a small campus garden. Today, the UC Davis Arboretum is considered one of the nation's leading institutions of its kind with 100 acres of garden. We'll see if we can't make a field trip out there and talk to some good folks at the Arboretum. From the idiot file, we have this item. 
Apparently, a UC Davis veterinarian was fined $500 by the city of Sacramento and has faced some sharp criticism from what's described as the Arden Fair Mall's security team after they found Addie, her Great Dane, locked in her car in the mall's parking lot. The doctor said she regrets the incident, but added that she took every precaution to ensure the safety of Addie. University officials say the dog did not require medical attention and they plan to take no actions against her. Said in the vet in her defense, As a vet, I know that leaving a dog in the car can be a serious issue. I feel terrible that this happened. I love animals. Notes the Sacramento Beat, Dogs left in cars, a potentially life-threatening situation, has been an all-too-common occurrence in Sacramento this summer, despite the mild weather, or perhaps because of it. Yeah, when it gets right down to it, I would certainly trust the evaluating ability of the mall security team over that of a trained veterinarian when it comes to whether it was safe to leave a dog in a car. Thankfully, the director of UC Davis Veterinarian School has offered support for the dog in question. Because apparently, according to the article, after the security team noticed that the dog was in the car, they took remote measurements to find the inside of the car was 108 degrees. You know, I used to work in the, uh, the Hunt Wesson Cannery, uh, both in Hayward and in Davis, and frequently the work environment was 120 degrees. It was a little hot, it was a little uncomfortable, but it didn't prove fatal. Anyway, enough of that. We have a much more idiotic story. In Sacramento, the city council and its wisdom have decided to dole out $555,000 to hire a panel of consultants to investigate the new arena issue for the Sacramento Kings. And man, are we tired of this story. But it keeps going from bad to worse. This is not $500,000 that's going to accomplish anything. It's going to study the issue. This is a fee that's going to be paid to consultants. Half a million dollars in a city that says it can't pick up the leaf litter in the streets. Oh my. Here's an item from the wishful thinking file. They're scared to death in Illinois that the Asian carp is going to find its way from the Mississippi River up into the Great Lakes. So last week, Illinois officials decided they were going to try and change people's perception of the carp by serving it up as food. The Illinois Department of Natural Resources held a public tasting event in Chicago with a Louisiana chef to start a campaign that may lead to feeding the fish to people facing hunger. You know, I suppose we should eat eat the carp to our heart's content, but I don't see how this solves any problems. You're never going to eat all of them. And if this, uh, if this fish finds its way in the Great Lakes, there is going to be hell to pay. The question I ask in all of this is, why did we allow fish farmers to bring this invasive foreign species onto American soil and then grow it in ponds to ship back to China? After all, sometimes it floods in the Midwest. And when it floods, fish in ponds find their way into local rivers, which is just what happened to this one. We just don't get why this sort of thing was and is allowed. It's crazy. And in other fish news, we back up the Sacramento Bee's editorial staff when they suggest that it's time for Jerry Brown to sign Assembly Bill 376, which will tweak California's existing laws against shark finning. As people in China are getting more, uh, more financially prosperous, there seems to be a booming demand for shark fin soup, an expensive delicacy. As a result... Sharks in the oceans of the world are being chopped up. Their fins are being hacked off, and they're being dumped back in the ocean. 
The San Francisco Chronicle reports that dried shark fins in Chinatown sells for $178 to $500 a pound. A shark fin soup typically costs $250 to $500 for 10 people. Current California law and federal law ban the practice of shark finning in U.S. coastal waters, but fleets continue to practice in international waters. Apparently, AB 376 would ban the possession, sale, and trade of shark fins in the world's second-largest shark fin market, which I guess is the Bay Area. All right, we've only got a couple minutes left, so let's do some historical trivia from that excellent source, the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader Series. All right, if you've ever wondered where pennies, dimes, and quarters come from, we've got the answer. Back in the 1700s, the relationship of values between coins were rather arbitrary and confusing. In England... Four farthings were worth one pence, 12 pence were worth one shilling, and 20 shillings were worth one pound. Then there was the guinea, a slightly larger coin than the pound. It was worth one pound, one shilling. As you might imagine, making change or converting prices from one coin to another was complex and time-consuming. After the revolution here in the U.S., we were eager to break with all things royal, so in 1782, the U.S. Superintendent of Finance sent a report to Congress recommending the U.S. adopt a decimal system of currency. The goal? Divide the dollar into 100 equal parts. Thomas Jefferson suggested the smallest part, one one-hundredth of a dollar, be called a cent, from the Latin word for hundredth, and that the tenth of a dollar be a dime, from the Latin for tenth. In 1792, Americans became the first country with the completely decimalized money system. England, by the way, didn't adopt the decimal system until 1971. So now you know. All right, final item. It's a tradition in the U.S. for when the president enters a room on a formal occasion for the song Hail to the Chief to be played. The origins? Well, our 11th president, James K. Polk, was apparently so, quote, physically undistinguished, unquote, the visitors to the White House often didn't notice when he'd entered the room. So to make sure they knew Polk was there, his wife Sarah arranged for the Marine Band to play this old Scottish anthem whenever he walked through the door. It was immediately adopted as a tradition, and all presidents have honored it since. Now you know. Our prodigious thanks to Daniel Okrent for speaking with us about his excellent book, Last Call. Also to our good friend, Mr. Will Durst. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time.